We've been moving through uh, the Old Testament thus far, uh, on our way to moving through the entire Bible. We have um, moved through the patriarchs, uh, the, the special plan that God set, let, uh, set in motion through uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Then last week we were in Exodus, and uh, we saw God uh, within the world, ministering to the world, connecting with his people. Uh, Israel and rescuing them from Egypt, but also um, reaching out to a, a greater audience. We saw there in Exodus chapter 12 how it was a, a mixed multitude that came out of uh, Egypt in God rescuing. That means that it wasn't just Israelites, that God had indeed connected with Egyptians and with others uh, to show that he was the true God. And, and many uh, were rescued then. And we left off last week uh, at Exodus chapter 19 with God identifying Israel as a special possession. And we talked about the implications for us uh, in that and, and how we understand our relationship with God and how God is very much in the world. Um, this week, I want to move into uh, the events surrounding that encounter there at Mount Sinai, that second encounter where God has now met with Israel, not just with Moses there. And he, he begins to outline uh, his covenant relationship with him. Now, when we think about covenant relationships, when we think about the covenants of the Bible, we obviously think about um, you know, the Abrahamic covenant, one that we've already covered. Uh, we think about the Messianic covenant, which uh, was part of the passage that uh, we read earlier from 2 Samuel chapter 7, the, the, the covenant that God made with David that would eventually lead to the coming of Christ. But in between those two covenants is what's called the covenant of Sinai. And, and at the covenant of Sinai, you have God really uh, go into great detail about his relationship with Israel and what exactly that looks like. And, and there are a lot of of laws that are connected to that Sinaitic covenant. If you've ever read through the scriptures and you got to uh, Exodus chapter 20 and following, uh, you know you were bombarded with laws. And sometimes some of those laws get really, really detailed um, in terms of what God expects of his priests, exactly how this event or this act is to be carried out, exactly how this uh, sacrifice is to be done, and so forth. And, and it, it's easy sometimes to get lost in that forest of all those laws. It, it's easy to, to look at those and, and to kind of miss exactly what's going on there and what it has to say, especially about God. And so this morning I want to look at, at the covenant and, and, and what that has to say uh, about God and the relationship that. Uh, he has with Israel. And, and the first thing I want to say uh, is, is, if you would, turn with me to Exodus chapter 24. And we're going to be looking at uh, really the, the, the beginning of this covenant, verses 3 through 8. I have it up here on the screen, but I know it's really small, especially if you're back in the back. That's a really small print. But I, for some reason, I don't know, I felt compelled to put it all on one screen. I probably shouldn't. I probably should have broken up. I apologize for that. Uh, right now, but this is Exodus 24, 3 through 8. This is God uh, speaking to Moses uh, there, uh, connected to Mount Sinai, 
And it's, it's the institution of, it's the entering into of the covenant with the people. It says, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it into bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people, and they responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So you have this, this ceremony, this event, that is the issuing in of a covenant. Now, one of the things we come to, to understand when we talk about covenant is that when God made this covenant, he didn't institute practices and policies just out of the blue. Okay, um, what, we, what we understand, in fact, is that the covenant is, in many ways, a treaty with a king. Okay. That's the first thing we need to understand about this passage. The covenant is a treaty with a king. And what that relates to us is, is that God is, in fact, a king. Now, where do we get that idea? Where, where do we get that, that supposition, that observation, that the covenant is a treaty with a king? Well, when you look at the structure of the covenant and, and, and the elements that play out, okay, you notice there's a process that happens in this relationship, in this, in this connection, and these steps are in fact modeled after a treaty, uh, a type of treaty that was very present in the ancient Near East. It's called a, a suzerainty treaty. Now, I didn't even bother to put that word up there on, <laughs> on the slides because it's not a word you're going to remember. It's not a word you necessarily need to remember, um, it, and it's a word that even if you do remember, you probably can't say it correctly because I can't say it correctly. So, um, but it's important in this sense. It's a type of treaty that was very present, very prevalent in the ancient Near East. There's multiple, dozens of examples of this sort of treaty from the ancient Near East, and these treaties follow a certain pattern. Okay, there's several steps in making that treaty. And those steps are present here in the covenant. Now, why would God use a treaty format to make his covenant with Israel? Why, why would that be uh, the model or the, the way that he expresses? Well, I think a, a big part of this is that he wants them to understand what's going on. Okay, When God came to speak to them, when God comes speak to us, he doesn't just come in out of the blue and give us this totally new way of relating or expressing or understanding things. He speaks to us, what? Where we're at. Okay. When God called you and, and, and laid on your heart to, to accept him as Savior, he met you where you were at. 
All of us are in different situations, different circumstances. Some of us were in church. We'd grown up in church, and it was just kind of a, a, a natural progression almost into that relationship. Some were out on the street taking part in different things. Some were at work. Some were in Bible studies with friends. Some were uh, sitting across the table from someone who revealed to them for the first time God's plan for your life. But wherever you were, God met you there. And he communicated to you in very clear ways, ways that you would understand so that you would know who he is and who he called you to be as well. And so when it comes to the covenant here, God doesn't come in and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reveal things to you in a way that is totally new, totally different, totally unexpected. You have to learn a whole set of new ways of thinking and relating and understanding the world. I'm going to talk to you, Israel, the way a king would talk to his subjects. And I'm going to make a treaty with you the way a king would make with a lesser king. Okay, So you can what? So you can understand these things. And, and, and you see this, this play out. The, 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 the basic pattern are, first of all, the deeds of the sovereign, um, the things that, that the king has done. That's the very first thing that's outlined. And you see this you know, very clearly in, in the, the narrative format of the Bible, firstly. But you see it, for instance, in Exodus 20. How does Exodus 20 begin? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. What's he doing there? He's establishing himself as a king. And he's saying, these are the great things I've done on your behalf. And then they go into the terms of the vassal. That is the, the, the servant side of the treaty, the, the underside of the treaty. What is it you're expected to do? And here you have the stipulations of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, the covenant code, those sorts of things. Then there's a, a, a formal reading of that covenant that takes place, and we just read part of that in Exodus chapter 24. And, and then you have a listing of the blessings and cursings. If you follow this treaty, if you follow this covenant, this is how you'll be blessed. If you break it, this is how you'll be cursed. You see that in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And, and then you have um, a covenant meal with witnesses which, of course, is the Passover meal and so forth. These are the elements that were made of, of every treaty in antiquity, and it's how the covenant plays out, too. Now, knowing that this is a treaty with, uh, with a king, this is the, the model, this is what would have been expressed to them in this form of covenant, what can we say about God? Number one, we can say he is the sovereign. He's king. Whatever else you want to say about God, he's father, and he is. He's my friend, and he is. He's my comforter. He's my corrector. You know, he's, you know, he's the lion. He's the lamb. All those different images we use of God, they all come back to one. He's king. He's the sovereign. He's the one in control. And, and he expresses that. He communicates that quite clearly here with this treaty format. I'm the sovereign. I'm the authority. I'm the one in the position of power. I'm the one who has all the cards. You know, you know when you go into a negotiation, usually there's what? There's something each party has. Well, I'll give you this and you give me that. That's a negotiation. But there is no negotiation with the God of the universe. He has all the cards. You do what he says or you suffer the consequences. 
And so he establishes right there that, that he is the sovereign. He is the one in control. As such, secondly, we understand that our position and status grows out of acknowledging his position and status. In other words, how do we know who we are? If he's the sovereign, if he's the king, if he's the one in authority, that then gives definition to us. That gives clarity to us. Okay? We, we, we understand our status. We grow in our life existence. We grow in our position by knowing his position, his authority. It's not about, quote, being, being fair or equitable or whatever it is you want to try and assign to the whole issue of life. Life begins, an understanding of ourself begins, when we acknowledge that he's God and we're not. When we acknowledge our desperate need for him, that apart from him, that apart from a relationship with him, we are without hope. We're without a future. We're without a purpose. We're without a plan uh, in life. And you see this acknowledgement with Israel's words that we read a few year, week, a few minutes ago, weeks ago. It wasn't weeks ago. It was just a few minutes. Time flies when you're having fun, right? <laughs> just a few minutes ago when they said, all that you have said we will do, we will do. Now, we know from the text that they weren't very faithful to that, that actually quite quickly uh, they slipped away from that. Uh, promise. Nevertheless, the, the very utterance of it, the very expression of it communicates to us that that's where we're going to find our identity. That's where we're going to find our future. That's where the whole process begins is with that admittance, with that confession that all that he says we're to do, we need to do. And the third, we see that his reign works into every part of our life. One of the things that you note when you read through the covenant and you read through the stipulations is that it touches every single part of the life. Marital relations, parent-child relations, business relations, day-to-day -day encounters, warfare, peace, whatever is going on, whatever is happening in your life, his covenant is a part of it. it, it infiltrates, it speaks to, it communicates. God is not interested in just being king of your Sunday mornings. He's not interested in just being king of you in the good times. He is a part of every part of your life, every relationship you pursue. He's there. And, and he is, uh, he expects to be at the center of it. He expects to be uh, acknowledged in it. He expects to be obeyed in it. But that obedience is only going to happen, what? When we acknowledge his position. When we live according to that. His authority only finds expression in our lives when we walk in a way that acknowledges his place and we follow in obedience. And so we see that our covenant not just Israel's covenant here, but our covenant. The new covenant that we follow under Christ 
is what? It's an acknowledgement of God as king. Because if if you notice when we read that passage from Exodus 24, there's a lot of passage, there's a lot of phrases there that, that find expression when you jump over to the new covenant. The, the idea of priesthood, the idea of his kingship. When Moses spread the blood, he said, What? This is the blood of the covenant. What did Jesus say when he passed the cup? This is the blood of the covenant. There's connections. There, there's, there's overlap. There's understandings that transfer. Even though the two covenants do have some very important differences, there is very much some core ideas that are the same. And as such, the second thing I want us to see about this whole covenant is that it's an opportunity to understand these things. What is God like? What does he desire? What does he want and enjoy and like? What what is it he expects of us? I've had some, some bosses, especially in the past, that it was very hard to do my job because I never really was certain what they were. I'd set out and, and try and please them as a good employee does, and they weren't pleased. And I would say, I'll do whatever you want. Just tell me what it is you want. And for some reason, they never felt compelled to tell me what that was. And those are some of the most miserable working conditions I, I've had in my life. And there are people all over this earth. There's a whole major religion that functions from a mindset of not really knowing what their God wants. We are so blessed to have a God who has communicated to us, who has revealed to us, who has related to us, not just his wants and his desires, but his very character and essence. And that comes out very clearly in this covenant. The first thing we see from this is that he has standards. He has standards. He has expectations. He, 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 and one of those standards is excellence. Excellence. I think a big reason behind all the detail that goes into the covenant, the priest doing this and not doing this, wearing this piece of clothing and that piece of clothing and, and walking in just this way and, and you know, certain things are, are you know, a part of, of the relationship. The, the great detail that it goes into. I don't think it's God trying to, to be legalistic. I think it's God trying to communicate. If you're going to do it, do it right. If you're going to do it, do it with excellence. And even as we move into the new covenant with, again, with the freedom that we have in Christ and, and the deliverance that we have in Christ, there is very much a need for excellence. Is that not what Paul says? If anything be true, if anything be what? Excellence. Think on these things. We don't need any more mediocre Christians. 
We have enough of those. We need people who are going to walk with conviction, people who are going to walk with excellence, people who are going to proclaim the truth of who God is without compromise or apology. I think a, a big reason that the world has got where the world is is because Christians were too apologetic about their faith. We're too willing to, to compromise on principles that should never be compromised. The law that God gives is, as Paul refers to it in Galatians chapter 3, it's a great schoolmaster. It teaches us. Paul says, the law was our, guard, our guardian until Christ came. It was a teacher until Christ came instructed us in who God was, what God desired. We also understand that, that we can know Him. We can know behind the law who He is. When we talk about the law and its application to our life, one of the things that we know We've covered this before. Is is we don't follow the the practice of many of the laws before anymore. Okay, there are many laws in the Old Testament we look at and we say, nope, don't do that anymore. Okay, we can think of you know a few examples: the food laws. Obviously, we don't. Most people don't keep those, uh, and if they do keep those, it's not because the law requires it; it's because they have some preference toward it for some reason. But in Acts chapter ten, God says what? Well, I've declared to be clean. Don't you declare to be unclean? So we don't follow those food laws. And again, I'm very grateful for that. I like a cheeseburger. And I like bacon. And I like ham. And I like shrimp. Crawdads. I, I could go on and on. There, there's lots of things that were excluded from those food laws that I'm like, thank you, Jesus, for coming. Among other things. So I can enjoy this food. Okay. We have these laws that we don't follow in practice anymore. So what role do they play? They they play a role of telling us who our God is. And so what we do is we is we look at the principle. What it what was the reason God gave that law in the first place? What was what was God's thinking toward Israel that he was trying to communicate to them about who he is. Okay. So you read in Leviticus 19, don't wear clothes of two types of fabric sewn together. Okay. Well, I think most of us have broken that law probably today. I think this is a cotton polyester blend, if I'm correct. Whoops. Sorry. But what was the principle behind that law? Well, we know from archaeology that in their culture, when a young couple got married, one of the things they would do is they would bring two types of cloth to the priest. This is not within Israel. This is outside of Israel. To the priest, and that priest would sew those two, those two pieces of cloth together. He'd weave them together. And as he did so, he'd do his incantation and chant so forth, 
And then the couple would stand before him and he'd take that new piece of cloth that had been sewn together and he'd put it over their shoulders. And and in, in this act, what he was doing was he was, in their belief, he was ensuring fertility, that that young couple would have lots of children. Okay, It was what? It was a magical rite where you're weaving these clothes and you're saying the right words and you're covering them with that. And it was supposed to give that child, that, that family fertility. Is that how God would have us pursue fertility? Through some magical rite, through some magical ritual that's not really dependent upon him, not really dependent upon relating to him or walking with him or understanding him or anything like that. He just wants us to do this silly act out here. And so what's God then saying there in Leviticus 19? He says, don't wear a cloth like that. He's saying, don't be like the pagans who rely on magical rituals and magical rites and, and these sorts of things. Rely on me. Trust in me. Walk with me. I'm the object of your faith. I'm the object of your hope. I'm the object of life and fertility and all those other things that are going to come your way. Trust in me for that. And so even though that, that, that practice with the clothing has fallen by the wayside, that principle is still very much a part of our life. We still very much need to rely on God, walk with God, trust in God for all the things that we encounter. And so we, we get to know him and what he desires of us and, and, and what he desires from us when we look at the covenant. We also come to understand besides having standards, he has desires. There are certain things God wants. Not because he needs them, but because, again, they are, they are a part of it. And, and all of these are centered on the idea of relationship. In Leviticus chapter 1 through 6, you have five offerings that are outlined there for, for Israel. Five things that they're supposed to bring to God. You have the whole burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. Those are the five primary offerings that are part of Israel's practice that are outlined there at the beginning of Leviticus. Now, What's the principle behind this? What is it that God's trying to say? Well, the whole burnt offering is what? You take the, the, the whole animal, you cut it up, so forth, you put it on the altar, and you burn the, the entire animal for God, which is what? It's a, it's a, it's a picture, it's a, it's a commitment, it's an expression that all that I am, God, I give to you. I'm giving this entire animal to you. Why? Because I've given my entire life to you. That's what God desires, right? He desires our whole being, our whole life. The second offering, the grain offering, you take some flour, you take some oil, you take some salt, you make it into a cake, and you put it on the altar and you burn it. Okay. Why would you do that? Because this was a, a, a Thanksgiving offering for the crop that just came in. You're taking a part of that crop, part of that grain that, that you've grown, and you're giving it back to God, and you're saying, thank you for blessing me with this provision, with this life, with this food. Okay. 
the third offering, the peace offering. You come, the giver comes, he brings his animal with him. A portion of the animal goes on the altar and is burned. A portion of the animal goes to the giver, and a portion of the animal goes to the priest. And they would sit down, and they would have a meal right there. That's part of the offering, which is what? It's, it's fellowship with God and man. It, it's, is there any more clear picture that you're fellowshipping somebody or connected with somebody than what? Than sitting down and eating with them. So that's what it's a picture of. Now, those first three offerings, those are all voluntary. Every one of them. You can give them or not give them. Now, if you give them, there's a certain way to give them, but that's what's outlined there in Leviticus. But you don't have to give any of them those first three if you don't want to. Why? Because you cannot mandate the things that they proclaim. You cannot mandate total giving of yourself to somebody else. If they are not willing to give it, you can't force it from them. You cannot mandate thankfulness. Okay. Now, I know as, as parents, we all talk to our children and we say what? When somebody gives them something. What do we say? Thank you. Okay. We're trying to teach them manners and all that sort of thing. But there's a big difference between that thank you and the one you get that just comes out of who they are. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. A big difference. Okay, you can't mandate thankfulness. You cannot mandate fellowship, connecting with each other, and so those three offerings are, are voluntary because they're things that that God desires from us. They're they're relational ideas, they're relational concepts, but they're not things that He's going to demand from us. And then the last two offerings, the sin offering, the guilt offering, they're they're essentially the same offering. The only difference is the guilt offering is what you do if your sin has led to the other person losing something. Something of monetary value. And so with the guilt offering, you do the sin offering, but you also repay them for what they've lost. It has that additional feature. Now the sin offering and guilt offering, they're both mandatory. Why? Because purity and relationship are at the heart of what it means to walk with God. You can't say you belong to God unless you have been purified by His work in your life. That's true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. Until God has cleansed you, until God has purified you, until God has transformed your very essence, you can't relate to Him. So nothing else matters. And so if you're going to be a part of Israel, if you're going to be a part of His people, those are mandatory. Those are required. So what does God desire? God desires relationship. That's why he made us in the first place, for relationship. And the sacrificial system simply plays that out even more completely. The third thing we learn about who the king is from the covenant is that he has compassion. There's a great many of the laws of the covenant deal with two issues, slavery and women. Now, why those two? 
Because in their culture and their environment, those are the two groups that were abused. Those are the two groups who were overlooked. Those are the two groups who were mistreated by their culture. And so God wants to make clear that in his covenant, things are going to be different. How we treat people, how we treat the weaker, how we treat the, the people who are not in the standing of favor in the culture, how we, how we treat those who are at our disposal, so to speak. In his covenant, it's going to be different. In his agreement, it's going to be different. A lot of times we have people today look at some of those laws dealing especially with women and their outcome and so forth. And we look at, and we and they say, Oh, how evil is that 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 the law would say such a thing? You know, about the, the woman um, going through something and, and this is what you, you have to do. What they fail to realize is that God's law is not saying treat the women this way, and then because you treated them this way, do this. What the law God is saying is because we live in a fallen world, women, slaves are sometimes going to be abused. They're going to be attacked. They're going to be hurt. And when that happens, this is how you respond to protect them. This is how you respond to make sure that they have standing. This is how you respond to make sure that they have a future and a hope and that they're taken care of in the midst of the community. Even when those closest to them have abused them or hurt them, the community is going to step in as a representative of God, and take care of them. And this is our God. He is a God of compassion. He sees the widow. He sees the homeless. He sees the helpless. He sees the orphan. He sees the lost. And in his compassion, he sent his son to die in our place so that we might have a future and hope. And then he teaches love. In the New Testament, you have the, the scribe, the lawyer, come to Jesus and they say, what are the greatest law of the laws? Looking at the entire covenant, all the laws that are there, which law is the greatest, Jesus? And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two, all the law rests. And at the heart of both of those laws is what? It's love. It's God's love for us that we can even relate to each other, that knowing what man is capable of doing to man, God provides us the love to be able to love each other in the midst of circumstances. And knowing the rebellion that man has toward God, God has given us the capacity to respond to his offer of covenant, of relationship. Because going back in the story to Adam and Eve, It's us that broke the relationship. It's us that walked away. It's us that rebelled. 
It's us that rejected. It's us that declared war on God. And that's our disposition since that time. That's our mentality since that moment. That's our perspective of Him. We are, in this sinful fallen world, enemies of God. But He desires relationship. And He's a God of compassion. And He's a God of love. And so in his resolve to overcome that rejection, that rebellion, he says, I'm not going to force it on you, but I'm going to reach out to you. And I'm going to show you who I am. And I'm going to show you my love. And I'm going to show you my grace. And if necessary, I'll show you my wrath. But I want you to come to me. And I want you to begin to experience again just a little bit of what Eden was like. To experience that life and that hope and that fellowship and that connection that we used to have. And to know that as you experience a little taste of that now, that that's just a foretaste of what I'm going to bring in the future. He set up the first covenant to reveal these things. He set up the second covenant to see them instituted in a more perfect way. In a way that overcame our frailties and our failures and highlighted His grace and His goodness. Some 1,200 years after he made this covenant with Moses and with Israel, he made another covenant through his son Jesus. In which he said, all you who are weary, heavy laden, burdened, overwhelmed, hurting, come to me and I'll give you rest. Though your sins be as scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. Though your heart be one of rebellion, I'll give you a new heart of sonship. All you need to do is come, and I will make all things new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word, for your claim on our lives, Lord. And I pray, Lord, as we enter into this time of invitation now, that you would draw those here who need to make a decision in your own commitment, Lord. And help us to be responsive to what you're doing, what you're going to do in our midst. And we're so thankful to you for your goodness. In Christ's name I pray, amen.